This is the Atlanta Small Business Show with Jim Fitzpatrick. Hi, everyone. Jim Fitzpatrick, another edition of the Atlanta Small Business Show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Today, we've got a special guest with us, Mr. Rizwan Virk. He is an, a book author, a, a very, very bright guy that's been to Stanford University as well as MIT. I want to uh, thank you so much, Riz, for joining us here on the show. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Your, your education is very impressive there. You must be a very smart guy. <laughs> Thanks. Well, you know, the subtitle of this book was supposed to be what they don't teach you at Stanford Business School, <laughs> but uh, it's been but, it's being published by Columbia Business School, so they didn't want to put that in the subtitle. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. Well, let's, let's kind of dive right in. Talk to us about uh, your new book, uh, Startup Myths and Models, Why you, What You Won't Learn in Business School. What was the motivation behind writing it? Well, you know, when I did my first startup, I was kind of under this overarching myth about entrepreneurship and startups. And, and this overarching myth is that you have an idea, you build a product, you get some financing, you release it. People love the product and everything just goes straight and up to the right. <laughs> and then everyone's fat, rich, and happy, right? Uh, well, uh, you know, when I was learning about, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell's um, stages of the hero's journey, uh, you know, there were some interesting parallels to the entrepreneur's journey. You know, the call to adventure, uh, refusal of the call, um, crossing the threshold. Uh, but there were some negative uh, elements in the, the hero's journey, which aren't present in that mythical entrepreneur's journey, uh, such as the road of trials, you know, right. which is when you're tested again and again, and you face certain death in the old heroes, you know, ranging from the Odyssey to Star Wars to Lord of the Rings, you know, they have these trials, and so do we as entrepreneurs. Yeah. Uh, and there's often a trip to the underworld, Right, which also happens in the startup world, which is when you're potentially facing the mortality of the company because you're about to run out of money because your product isn't going the way that you thought it would. Right. And so as I reflected on you know, what people think the entrepreneur's journey is like versus what it's really like, I realized that there were lots of misconceptions about what it's like to start a company and that these misconceptions can be flipped on their head as lessons for entrepreneurs to help them get through the journey. Now, just like, you know, the old adventures, no two of them were the same. Uh, similarly, no two entrepreneurs' journeys are going to be exactly the same, but they go through very similar stages and face similar challenges along the way. Uh, and so I found myself teaching these lessons to entrepreneurs uh, one by one. And then I went back to MIT and started a startup accelerator so I could teach them to like 10 entrepreneurs at a time. Uh, but I figured with a book, I can actually get it out to a lot more people who are going on this adventure. Sure. That's and, why. And do you really not learn this stuff in business school? Uh, no, you know, uh, you do learn some things in business school. Like everyone wants to know, you know, the one, two, three formula and how do I put together a business plan? You know, how do I do X, Y, or Z? Uh, I remember in, in business school, one of my classes, we had a class on, on decision model. So this was one of the few classes on how to make decisions. And we created these very elaborate spreadsheets and you had all these numbers put in and in inputs. And then you came out with these different scenarios and the outputs and you just looked at the number and you said, oh, scenario A is better than B and that's better than C. Therefore, the right decision is scenario A. Sure. And our teacher literally had written the book. I mean, he had written the spreadsheet modeling textbook we were using. And I raised my hand and I said, well, what if you change that number over here? He goes, well, then everything changes. <laughs> said, well, how do you know what numbers to put in? So what I found was that a lot of what we learn in business school is for mature companies where they look at the past 
and they try to plug in numbers to get probabilities for the future. Right. Now, if there's one thing that's certain in the startup world, it's that the past does not equal the future. Right. So you can't simply just put things into spreadsheets. Right. Uh, and a lot about valuation, you know, is based on cash flows. Well, guess what? In the early days, uh, most startups don't have any cash flow, right? So how are you going to value companies? Well, it's done in Silicon Valley all the time, but there were no good models, you know? And so I decided, well, it would be nice to not just kind of have these myths and misconceptions, but also to have some models, just like in, in economics class, they used to have these supply and demand curves. And they said, well, you know, if you find the intersection point, you know, that's the price in the market. Now, the point wasn't so much the, the exact numbers, it was the direction of these curves. Yeah. And so I came up with a set of curves and models for how startup markets evolve as well. And, and that's in the book, it's called the Startup Market Lifecycle, mm -hmm. uh, which the important point is the direction of how the market is changing. Uh, so that's an example of the kinds of things you don't learn in business. Sure, sure. So what, what is a startup model? Well, so a model is a way to think about what's happening either in your startup or in the market itself. Yeah. And so if you think about how companies are valued in the public markets, typically you have a price earnings ratio, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, now it, for startup markets, they usually start off in a nascent market where it's just a hobbyist. It's a few yeah. people playing around with it. This goes all the way back to the 1920s when you know, I, I grew up in Detroit and there were a lot of garage inventors back then, right? Sure. Buick, Oldsmobile, these guys were just playing around, right? Then uh, the startup market evolves into what I call the growing phase. And that's where VCs jump in and they start to invest in the company. Yeah. And typically they might try to value the company based on revenue. So three to five times revenues is not sure. unusual. Then what happens in certain startup markets and I, I really saw this because, you know, as part of my background, uh, I, I started building video games. Mm -hmm. And so I was in business school around the time of the, the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. And one of the markets that emerged after that was mobile gaming. Today, mobile gaming is a $70 billion market, right? It's the largest component of the $100 billion plus video game market. Back then, mobile gaming was a hobbyist's, right? It was just a couple of guys building <laughs> games. And, sure. and so we built a game called Tap Fish, and it became the number one grossing game in the App Store. Wow. And I saw this market evolve from nascent to growing. And then there's a sliver of time in, in technology markets where it becomes super hot. And sometimes acquirers will value companies at 100 times revenues <laughs> during it. Now, more common is 10x times revenues. Right. But then something strange will happen. Everyone and their mother or their brother or their cousin uh, will jump into this market during the super hot phase. You know, it yeah. happened in the dot-com days. Right. It happened in the mobile gaming days. It ha it's happened with AI recently. And what happens is there are suddenly too many startups. They can't all win. And so then the market enters the maturing phase. And what happens during the maturing phase is that many of these companies can't raise follow-on financing. And so acquirers, instead of jumping to buy companies, they say, well, let's just wait because the valuations will go down and we'll figure out who the leaders are. Now, oddly enough, in this phase, revenues come back, multiples come back down to three, three to five times revenues. Mm -hmm. So I was an investor in a company called Funzio, which sold to Gree for $200 million in 2012. Wow. Now that's a lot of money. It seems like yeah. a great outcome, but it was only four times revenues. Whereas companies that sold in 2011 and 2010 got 
five to 10 times revenues, right? And so what was happening was that market was maturing. And now there are multiple public companies, King.com, Zynga, and others in this market. And there are multi-billion dollar companies and everything is based on cash flow. Uh, not many people know this, but uh, Pokemon Go, which was a very popular game, for example, um, uh, came out in, I think, 2016 or 2015, but they had raised $30 million <laughs> Uh, before the game came out because it was a mature market. Just like if today you're going to go after a mature market, like the automobile market, you have to be like Elon Musk and put in $190 million of your own money. But when we were doing it, we spent $25,000 to build a game and $25,000 to market a game. That's back to the, you know, the Fords and the Oldsmobiles back in Detroit. And so every startup market that becomes a real mature market goes through these phases. So that's an example of a model. Now that's more detailed than the other models, but that's one that I developed throughout the book because you can see how it will change your opinion. I know many people who were offered $100 million to sell their companies during the dot-com days. It was in the super hot phase. They chose not to. What wow. Now the other truth in startups is the present doesn't equal the future either. So not only does the past not equal the future. So one of the myths in the book is if I just wait another year, my company will be worth twice as much, especially if my revenues are twice as much. Well, this model shows you that's not true because the multiples will come down. So you could have more revenue, but your company could be valued less than it is today. So, yeah. So conversely, what are, uh, that's the model. What, uh, what's a startup myth? Well, so a myth is is something that's tossed around fairly commonly. And so, you know, uh, a myth uh, in the startup world is take the highest valuation you can find, yeah. right? Which seems reasonable. What, what what it means is if you're, if you're being offered money by two different venture capitalists, take the one that gives you the highest valuation. Why? Because you'll give up the least amount of the company, right? So if you raise a million dollars from this guy versus this guy. But the problem is what entrepreneurs don't realize is that a valuation is not the same for a startup as it is for a public company, right? Mm-hmm. So if my stock is worth $10 in the public markets, I can sell it for $10. But in the public markets, if the company misses its expectations, that stock price can go down. Now I can sell it before it goes down. In startups, you can't sell your stock for the most part until the company becomes quite successful. There's a whole chapter on uh, whether selling or IPO is the best way to go. That's a myth as well. It turns out the best way is to do what's called a secondary sale, which you can do along the way. Now, getting back to the original myth of take the highest valuation you can find, well, it turns out uh, that a valuation in a startup is a set of expectations. So if I were to ask you a question that says, uh, okay, you have to jump over this bar, how high would you like me to set it? Here, here, or here? Well, you're not going to set it here because that's pretty hard to jump over. You don't want to set it too low because it's too easy. You need to set it just right. And that's the same with the valuation because what happens with a lot of startups, particularly in Silicon Valley, is they get valued too highly initially. Then they have what's called a down round. And you don't want a down round. That's one of the worst things you can do. So that's an example from uh, stage two, getting financing for the journey. what's What's a down round? So a down round is, suppose your company is valued at $10 million by investors. Right. And they give you $2.5 million, so they own roughly 25% of the company. Right. Uh, and now an up round would be the next time you raise financing, you raise it at $20 million. Right. right. So everybody's stock value has gone up. The down round is when investors say, you know, you said you were going to have 
five million in revenues before your next round, but in fact, you only have one. Right. And the entrepreneur is sitting there thinking, well, I had zero last time and I was worth 10 million, so I must be worth more because I have one million in revenues. Now, what they don't understand was that the $10 million valuation was a set of expectations that you yeah. would get to five million in revenues. And right. so the investor says, well, we're only gonna value your company at five times revenues now. So right. you have one million in revenues, you're valued at $5 million. But guess what? That's half the stock price of the last round. That right. means everybody gets diluted. So the ownership, right. your ownership comes down. And that's not pretty, not just because of the ownership issue, but because then other investors lose confidence. Uh, and cash, you know, is something that's very important with startups that don't have profits. And right. so if you can't raise more cash, your company may go out of business. So a down round is something you want to avoid at all costs, basically. Yeah, yeah I can imagine that's... Uh... So was it fun making video games? I mean, that sounds like uh, a lot of fun to, to be in that business. You know, yeah, it can be. It, it depends on, uh, uh, you know, what kinds of games you're making. But uh, I remember once when we had this game, Tap Fish, I, we, we went to a restaurant and we had just released the game. The game was a big hit. And we looked over and there were some high school kids playing our game. <laughs> that was kind of cool because before yeah. that I did enterprise software and, you know, XML document management. And you can't really sure. explain that to anybody and nobody has heard of it. But with game games you know people can just go oh you have a bingo game okay i'll just download your bingo game and play it yeah. so that aspect of it was definitely fun uh, but as i said the mobile game market went through this 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 uh, set of stages and then it became much more difficult to be successful uh, and so then it became not so much fun <laughs> <laughs> you know there's we hear a lot about the fact that there's a lot of money out there a lot of dry powder that you know uh, small business owners can get their hands on now. I don't know how that's changed maybe since COVID-19. Maybe that's not uh, the case right now. However, there's been a lot of money on the sidelines waiting for the right deals. Um, is it easy to raise uh, VC financing? And what are the, some, some of the common myths about financing? Sure. Well, I, I'd say, it, you know, it's never easy to raise financing, even if it looks like it is, right? Yeah. And most entrepreneurs will tell you that with rare exceptions, right? I mean, I've been a founder in five startups and an investor in dozens. With rare exceptions, it always takes twice as long as you think yeah. uh, to get there, and it's twice as hard. Now, one of the myths in the book about raising financing is talk to as many investors as you can. Right. And that's something you hear all the time. And, and it makes sort of sense because the more people you talk to, the more likely you'll find someone that wants to invest. The problem with that is that if you're talking to too many investors, you're spending all your time raising money and none of your time uh, running the company. More than that, if after talking like 10 to 20 VCs, you don't get a bite, what it means is there's probably something wrong with your story. Right. So, or, or, you're, or you're going after the wrong people. So I remember once there was a company I was an investor in that, had, uh, that was helping people in Latin America, in Mexico, in Nicaragua, and Brazil find jobs using text messages. This was before smartphones. Yeah. And he kept seeing all these stories in TechCrunch about this company raises $5 million, this company raises $10 million. So he kept flying into Silicon Valley to meet with VCs thinking he was going to raise his Series A here because it looked so easy because everybody's raising money. Well, in the end, it turned out he was able to raise money, but not in Silicon Valley. He was able to raise it from a venture fund that was focused on Latin America, which makes perfect sense. And so, you know, one of the pieces of advice that, that I learned along the way was, you know, find your tribe uh, for your investors. Now, you know, I graduated from MIT. My first investors I found through the MIT network. Uh -huh. uh, the entrepreneur who gave me that advice was a guy named Gurinder Sangha who started a legal tech company mm -hmm. called Intelligize, which uh -huh. he eventually sold to LexisNexis. But he graduated from UPenn 
And turns out his first investor was a Penn alumni. Wow. And so you have to figure out what your tribe is and your first institutional investors will probably come through contacts and they have to already have an interest in that market, just like the Latin America example. Sure. I'll give you another example. There was a company raising money for consumer shopping here in Silicon Valley. I use it in the book, Sift Shopping. And he said, every, all the VCs here asked the wrong questions. They asked about technology platform and scaling. But when he went to New York, he found that they understood you know, consumer shopping trends and fashion because a lot of the users were women. And they asked the right questions about the user experience. And so it was easier for him to raise money in New York than it was in Silicon Valley. So you have to really be more selective rather than less. That's why I talk to as many investors as you can is kind of a myth. Now, all of these myths have a kernel of truth to them, but if you apply them the wrong way, you can waste a lot of time. You could even end up killing your company. That's and right. that's what the book is all about. That's right. How does one find out what their tribe should be? In other words, if you've got, if you've got a widget or a software that you've developed or an app or what have you, how do you find out whether or not you should even be talking to that uh, potential uh, investor? You, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I think you have to look at the profile that they invest in, and then you have to look at your profile uh, as a company and as a set of entrepreneurs. You know, uh, Freud once said that uh, the danger in self-analysis is that you are too soon satisfied with an incomplete explanation. <laughs> and the same is true in analyzing your own company, right? And so, you know, venture capitalists look for a certain type of return. It, you know, when I started back in the 90s, it used to be five years and 50. So in five years, you had to get to $50 million in revenue. Today, it's build the next unicorn, right? Yeah. Which is the, the term for a private company that's valued at over right. a billion dollars. But another myth is that, you know, you have to build a unicorn. Yeah. The truth is, if you look at many unicorns, when they started out, there wasn't a multi-billion dollar market, right? right? They were just playing with something that they were intrigued by. Yeah. Um, and then they eventually went on and found the right product, which sometimes is not the first product. So uh, you've heard of Slack, uh, probably, which we all use. There's a company called Discord, which is a chat app uh, that I was an investor in. Uh, but Discord and Slack both started off as game companies. Uh, not many people know this, and the games failed. So they each transferred or pivoted the company to doing uh, these chat apps. And now they're both, you know, one is public and one is valued at wow. dollars. Uh, but that wasn't where they started. So another kind of important lesson is where you end up may not be where you start. And so that's why the team is very important in the profile. And so, you know, your tribe may come from if you, you know, worked at in an IT department of a big company, uh, you may approach venture capitalists who invest specifically in SaaS companies, startups mm -hmm. that provide value to big IT departments. Or if you work for Oracle, uh, you can find an alum from Oracle that is a VC. So there's ways to find your tribe based upon who you are, what your company does, sure. stage of the market, and the profile and size of, of the market that you're going after. Sure. What's, your, what's your feeling on uh, entrepreneurs uh, to go to friends and family? Which well, friends and family is... Yeah, you know, it used to be, we, we had a saying in, in the startup world that you, your first money comes from the three Fs, right? Friends, families, and fools, right? <laughs> uh, and certainly my, uh, the first money I ever raised with my co-founder's parents put in 25K and one of my um, uh, classmates from MIT, his parents put in 25K. So that's usually where it started. Today, that's called a pre-seed round. You know, back yeah. then it was just angels, right? Yeah. And turns out a lot of accelerators now 
have cropped up. So I ran an accelerator I mentioned at MIT called Play Labs for, for playful technology companies uh, for a few years. Uh, but there's a Y Combinator here in Silicon Valley. There's Techstars in Atlanta. And uh, every other major city has startup accelerators. In fact, many universities do. So yeah, I would say friends and family isn't a bad way to get started, but you want to make sure they're not putting in more than they can afford, right? Nobody should be mortgaging their house to put money in a startup, right? That's right. why we have this idea of accredited investors. They should be able to lose it because 90% of startups fail. Now, that doesn't mean yours will. Yours may be the 10% that are successful, which is great. You just don't want to put other people at risk. And so that's why we look for qualified and accredited investors. Yeah. Should entrepreneurs be prepared to step down as the CEO once the company gets funded and off and running? You know, you'll see that oftentimes where, you know, they'll, they'll ask the founder that, that, that uh, you know, was the originator of the idea and such to say, hey, we're bringing somebody in to run the company. Is that pretty, pretty normal? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it used to be more normal than it is now. So like when, when I started in the startup world, that was the playbook, right? The founders were typically technical guys. You know, I studied computer science. We, Michael yeah. Vaughn and I wrote the code for our first program ourselves. And uh, the VCs, when they gave us our first term sheet, you know, it said within 120 days, you will bring in another CEO that we approve of, right? right. <laughs> so it, it was very explicit in our first round of financing. Right. Today, they don't do that as much. Uh, because I think there, you know, it's become a realized, particularly in Silicon Valley, that some of the great companies uh, have gone on to have the founders yeah. as CEOs, whether it's Steve Facebook, Zuckerberg, yeah. Steve Jobs, Zuckerberg, right. Bill Gates, right. Dell, many others. Now, that's not to say that works for everybody. Right. These were typically guys who either weren't that technical or were, you know, could make that transition. Right. Uh, but if you look at Google, it's actually not a bad model because the founders were very technical PhDs. They brought in Eric Schmidt, who also had a PhD, yeah. uh, but the founder stayed heavily, heavily involved. Right. So, you know, that's actually not a bad model, but I think the big returns often come from founders who can turn into CEOs and lead the company for a while, maybe not all the way to the IPO, but certainly not the way they did it with, with us, where we had our first million dollars in revenue and they were like, okay, we need to bring in, you know, what, what we used to call the gray hair polo shirt wearing guys, right? <laughs> uh, as entrepreneurs. And so it still happens. It makes sense if you're like a pure scientist who just wants to focus on the technology. It actually is a good move. But for many others, you should give it a shot and see how far you can get the company, I think. Yeah, for sure. Well, Riz Burke, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the Atlanta Small Business Show. The book is Startup Myths and Models. What do you want? What you won't learn in business school? Thank you so much for joining us here. Love to have you back. We can talk all day about uh, the topics that are in this book. So, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for watching Atlanta Small Business Show with Jim Fitzpatrick. This has been a JBF Business Media production.